Welcome to Dragon Talk! This is the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Woo! I'm Greg Tito. I'm Shelly Mazanoble. Woo! Yeah! We have an excellent episode coming at you in 3D. Woof! All those dimensions are coming at you audio-wise, as Whoa. well as video-wise, as well as inside your brain. I'm making all this up as I go along. But it is very exciting uh, for us because we get to talk to Matthew Mercer today from Critical Role. Yay! The dungeon master extraordinaire who has been entertaining people for mm, almost five years. Has it really been almost five years? I, yes, because I remember this. Uh, a, a, I, I figured this out like a year or two ago, but I started at Dungeons & Dragons the same week that Critical Role premiered. No way. Yes, so my employment here is directly tied to how long Critical Role has been broadcasting. Oh, I love that. Uh, Yeah, so it's pretty easy for me to remember. Yeah. Uh, But that's coming up on March 9th, I think. Uh, So Your anniversary. My anniversary. And their anniversary. And their anniversary. So that's really exciting. And we spoke to Matt and I believe Taliesin and Marisha. Um, early on in their career, uh, I think it was within the first year or so. That's crazy. Um, that they had Love been... Love to go back. Yeah, and listen to it. Uh, we often tell the story of how uh, Shelley was doing voice interpretations yeah. of uh, Bert and Ernie at the time. Yeah, just Bert. Just Bert. Just Bert. <laughs> That's Ernie. <laughs> Where you would laugh hey, at Bert. Bert. Hey, Bert. Uh, yeah, and then, yeah, Matt just dropped the Kermit the Frog on you. That like, was amazing. And I never spoke again. <laughs> Ever. Until Greg took me. You have been quiet. To a wizard. Since then. To get my voice back. That's true. We, it was a whole adventure. Yep. It was exciting. Yeah. Uh, so we can't wait to talk to him. Uh, not only just about the amazing stuff that he's doing with Critical Role, but Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount. What? It is an excellent 304-page book that is coming to you live on March 17th. You can get it in bookstores, in big box stores, in game stores, which is where you really should get it, uh, and all over the internets. It is fantastic, and we are going to talk to not only Matt Mercer... But Chris Perkins. I mean. As well, uh, since they, two of them, collaborated uh, a lot on this book, uh, as well as with a wonderful team of freelancers and the Dungeons & Dragons design and layout team. Um, But yes, it's going to be really exciting. Dream team. The dream team. Yeah. The dream team. Yeah. Except no Christian Leitner. No. No. Yeah. That one was, that was one for you, Teos, if you're listening. Yeah, he's a Duke fan, so I like to kind of rub it into Teo's Abadia. Anyway, that's coming up. Um, Again, March 17th is the release date for Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. We will be also releasing a dice set at that exact same date. But wait, it's not just a dice set. No, that's right. It's also a Bassomatic 76 (laughs) You can put your dice into that blender and spin and, them around. And a dice dehydrator. A di- you can turn your dice into dice jerky in under a minute. As well as a sham wow. <laughs> Clean up those messy spills. Every time you vomit from, <laughs> oh, no. uh, from the moth attacking you, you will be able to clean that up <laughs> with this sham wow. Uh, no. What we're talking about is Laryl Silverhand's Explorer's Kit, which 
I mean, it is a kit, so it you might is. think that some of these items are yes. in there. Could um, be. But it is a dice set that mo- is modeled after the form factor of the Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus dice set, uh, which so many folks loved out there. Uh, this Laryl Silverhands kit is uh, not tied to any specific adventure, but gives you lore uh, in those uh, amazing cards for the Sword Coast in general. So you'll learn about Waterdeep, Baldur's Gate, um, some major characters like Mert the Moneylender, oh. Durnin the Wanderer, Laryl Silverhand herself, uh, as well as a fold-up map of the Sword Coast and the city of Waterdeep. It comes Too in a box. Cool. It comes, my favorite part is the box that opens up, and then you got two felt-lined dice trays that you can roll the How amazing cool is that? 11 dice set in it. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, you get 11. 11. That is a full... I mean, some people turn their music up to 11. We turn our dice sets up to 11. Some people have a full head of hair. Some people have a full set of dice. <laughs> talking to you, Greg. Tito. I get to have both. <laughs> I, get to, I mean, I'm a lucky man. What can I say? <laughs> it is also Valentine's Day uh, here in the office. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it will be very past that time. Yes. Uh, but we have some really cute valentines that are out there in the world for you to print out I mean. and spread to all of your friends celebrating not only the love of Dungeons and Dragons, but amazingly cute characters that you can get from Dungeon Mayhem Monster Madness. And you know what? It doesn't just have to be for Valentine's Day. You can share those cards any time of year. And I will. And I will too. I promise. sentiment doesn't go out of style. My favorite uh, one is some of this uh, amazing copy that was written on them was by Lisa Penrose. Yep. uh, Amazing community manager for Dungeon Masters Guild as well as social media maven here at Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, Hoots Magoots is a character that is an owlbear. It's got kind of a circus feel to the character, uh, which you'll find out in the character decks available from Dungeon Mayhem Monster Madness. But uh, that... Valentine says, "What is? How does it go again?" I can't bear bear because it's an owl bear to be with owl you. And it's the owl is spelled out with a T. So brilliant! It's so punnerific. It is. Uh, it and makes I me laugh. Love a pun. I, I just, too. Puns are great. There are folks out there that don't like puns, and I don't want to know them. I feel like that's got to be like the same gene that makes you not like cilantro. Like it's not your fault. Like, I yeah. think you were just born with something. Yeah. Like, how can you not like a pun? Right? Especially one that's got these acute owlbear on it with a funny oh, hat. Oh, I know. Exactly. And what's coming at you with those big sharp claws? Dr. Tentaculus has one that's out there right now that is our Mind Flayer professor. Psychologist. Psychologist, sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe is he a psych professor? He could be. All right, he's in my brain because he's. He's in your player. brain. No, he actually he's is in my like brain. Literally in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that Valentine says you have a delicious mind. You do. You know who else is a big fan favorite? Who? Blorp. Blorp. I love a blorp. The gelatinous cube. I know. He just wants hugs. He just wants to hug. He's like, come here, bring it in, Let's buddy. Let's hug forever. Bring it in. Yeah. And then he just absorbs your kind of body. Travels. He absorbs all of your life essence. Life he doesn't mean it. He, well, that's what he love is. He wants to hug. He wants to absorb everything about you. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what me and my wife do. We just like hold on to each other and absorb. Absorb. <laughs> that's the word for it. Uh, it is very exciting. Blorp is one of my my very favorite ones uh, because uh, there's a really exciting thing coming for those of you who are going to be at uh, the Emerald City Comic Con here in Seattle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, our friends at 
uh, Funko, well, you, if you come to Emerald City Comic Con, you might be able to get a exclusive Funko Pop of a gelatinous cube. It's adorable. It's adorable. Um, not everyone's going to be able to get one. They're definitely going to be in demand. Um, but I am very excited about them. And then when uh, when I saw it, I immediately thought of Blorp. I did too. Yeah. Yeah, it's They're really so good looking. They're so in demand that Hillary, our licensing manager, won't even show us the sample she has. No. <laughs> and then she has to hide it around the office. <laughs> she's, I know she said it's hidden in several different places and it changes. Yeah, she changes the location. So smart. I know. Hillary Ross really, she knows I what she's doing. I uh, like maybe a foot and a half away from her and I never saw it. And I see everything. I know. I have to go there before D&D News every week to be like, what's cool, what's new. She's got lots of cool stuff. Like there, she does have a lot of cool stuff, she and does. this is one of them. Uh, so we'll be talking more about uh, ECCCCC uh, in the next uh, few weeks as Peace it leads up it. to, because uh, that's in March of this year here in Seattle. Uh, right up. We've been talking about Dungeon Mayhem, but let's make sure we get it out there. When are people going to be able to get that? February 28th. Woo! The day before Chris Perkins' birthday. <laughs> it will ever be infamous for that date. Yes. Excellent. No, I'm not talking about March 1st. I'm talking about February 29th. The form factor of that box is extremely attractive. I'm just going to have is. to say. I love all of the artwork uh, by Cam Kendall oh, on the outside. So Every surface of the box has like just... It, that it, was ex- Trish. Trish Yoakum making it happen. We're yep. giving lots of shout outs today, but she... It's Valentine's Rocked day. it out of the park. She really did. She's done all of the Dungeon Mayhem. She has set the tone for the look and feel of it, and it's just one of the most beautiful things we've done. And there's storage for each one of the character decks that have been released so far. So there's 12 12. in there, and the dividers are all in there. And the dividers are personalized for that character. It looks You know exactly where to go. If If you're like, I'm playing Leah today, or I'm playing Jahara, just boop. There it is. And a little box to store your tokens. I love it. It's as someone who loves a well organized like game. Yeah, it just it checks all the boxes for me. Me too. Yeah, yeah. So you get those six new characters plus you get the storage box. It's awesome. I know. It's I love really it. Great. I love it so much. Uh, so people will be able to get that in uh, game stores. Yeah, and everywhere that you buy your games. February twenty eighth. February twenty eighth. Very exciting. Very exciting. I feel like I've said that a lot because I'm excited because I've had about. 15 ounces of this 20-ounce mug of coffee. Uh-oh. So everything's exciting Uh-oh. right now. Greg's getting even more excited. You know what's going to make me uh, triple excited? Like a triple espresso? What? This Lori Should Know segment we're going to listen to right about now. Let's do it. It might not even be a Lori segment. Let's just throw this it to a segment. segment. Yeah. It could be you talking to an amazing person about how to DM. Could be uh, you talking to an amazing person about lore. Or uh, about rules. Or about rules or about character generation. Let us summon the segment, shall we? Yes. It's a moth. Hi, everyone. Welcome to How to DM. I am here with somebody you probably recognize if you're watching, and you will probably recognize as soon as you hear his voice because you hear it a lot, Mr. Jeremy Crawford. Hello, everyone. Lead rules designer for Dungeons & Dragons. When you were growing up and playing Dungeons & Dragons, did you think this was like an actual job that you could have? No way. Isn't that weird? No, if I traveled back in time and told the kid version of me, someday Mm -hmm. this will be your job, he would have... Like, that's that little, not a job. Yeah, little, little boy me would be like, mm-mm. You're lying, mister. <laughs> yeah. Also, You're, don't talk to strangers. This is a big trick. Yeah. Lead rules designer. 
crazy. Yeah, it is. But I but love it every job. day. I, it, it's a privilege. Uh, I get to work on a game I love. I get to work with wonderfully creative people, and we get to make things for fans who love the game That's and true. do amazing things with it. And we make the world a better place because D&D helps make the world a better place. It uh, really does, yeah. in my opinion. Um, and so does dungeon mastering. Or since, so I'm told. Since there is no D&D without Dungeon Mastering. We need more Dungeon Masters. That's right. You always need Dungeon Masters. Yes. When did you start your uh, foray into Dungeon Mastering? So I started as a kid. I played it first for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I started playing when I was around six years old. Six? Yeah. But at first, to be clear, when I say I started playing D&D, it's like big air quotes here because we didn't realize there were rules. There was this older kid at my school who had found one of the original adventures. I think it might have been White Plume Mountain. Oh, wow. And would just read situations out of the adventure to us, and we would just make up what happened. That's kind of D&D. Yeah. So it was later when I discovered there was actually a framework for how you described what you would do. I thought, oh, this is even more cool, because then you can like take what you imagine and tie it to this neat game. But my first experience was just open-ended storytelling, and so I thought that was D&D. And then the more I got into the rules, the more I wanted to be on the DM side of the DM screen and start creating scenes for my friends. And, you know, I DM'd a lot of, like, classic old adventures when they first came out, like the Temple of Elemental Evil, Mm -hmm. the original Dragonlance saga, uh, all of that. Uh, I was often there as a kid, either in the dining room in our, our house or out on the picnic bench. My mom and my stepdad would have us sometimes sit out on the pic- picnic bench oh, uh, out in the backyard. To get some fresh air? Yeah. Well, plus I, I grew up on the central coast of California oh. where the weather is like perfect. Yeah, you should be outside. So we got sunshine and played D&D at the same time. That's amazing. Yeah. You got vitamin D and D&D. Look at you. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it was D and D and D. So much. Yes. And and my mom and my stepdad's names both start with D. Seriously? Yeah, so they were sometimes referred to as D and D. Dennis Dennis and Diana. I feel like this was <clears throat> meant to be your path. That's right. You didn't really have a choice. Like, you know, once learning this game doesn't have any rules, it's awesome. And then you're like, I'm gonna make the rules. <laughs> you know what? This game needs some rules. And I'm the man to do it. Uh, yeah. That is awesome. What what I find is adorable is to this day, my mom, despite having seen hours and hours and hours of Dungeons & Dragons, both when I was a kid and DM'd at home, and then now she will sometimes watch like my Acquisitions Incorporated yeah. games, she still doesn't really get what it is, but she's just like, oh, it's funny. It's just, <laughs> that's my son being really clever and talented. Yeah. I know, they don't really get it. <laughs> my dad does not, like I once overheard him explaining D&D to someone and I was like after I'm like you never read my book did you <laughs> like I actually wrote about this very thing and he was like no I I absolutely looked at the pictures in that book yes exactly. <laughs> I sure did <laughs> but it was like it's cute and charming that you're trying to explain it to someone like another like 65 year old man or something but yeah. whatever I just I don't they don't get it have you ever played with your mom? I haven't. I have offered, though, and I think I might actually get her to play. Be- really? Yes, because my uh, two nephews and my four nieces, all on that side of my family, yeah. they all want to play. Oh, boy. My stepsister wants to play, 
And when my mom saw the excitement of like the family all wanting to play, yes. she was like, maybe I'll finally get to play. Get to play. Yes. Does that make it sound like she's wanted to and you never let her? I <laughs> always would have let my mom play of if course. she had wanted to because my, my mom is great. Like, I, And I also love that I think it was my stepsister who's also never played, but she's like, maybe I'll finally try it. And she's like, can I play a mermaid? And I was oh. like, of course. That's a good DM tip right there, <laughs> yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes, you can. And yeah, because this is a tip to all of you out there. I'm a, a big fan when you're a DM of reskinning things that are in the game to make people's D&D dreams come true. Yes. So if you have someone who wants to play a mermaid, it is easy to do. Just take the Triton, uh, who we published in Volo's Guide to Monsters. There you go. Just describe them as a mermaid. And when they need to walk on land, then they're... Their tail will just magically turn into feet, and they can walk like around. Yes, yes. But with but without a wicked sea witch messing things up. Right. I mean, you could, I guess, if you that would be want fun. To play that. I, in fact, I might have to do that as the she advent- might need that if, as the adventure for yeah. when I do the the giant extended family D and D game. That's going to be fun. Yeah. What kind of character do you think your mom would be? She's going to want to be somebody powerful. Mm-hmm. And regal, so oh, nice. I'm I'm guessing she's going to want to play like a sorcerer or a wizard or a cl- someone with magic. Yeah, because she often likes magic and stories, and but regal. So I might have to say she's like a visiting queen or something. I think you absolutely need to say that. <laughs> I think that's going to be amazing. This could become a new family tradition. Yes. Well, and on in my on my dad's side. Uh, we already do play D&D together. You I've, do? Oh, yeah, because it was my, my sister Amy in that family who introduced me uh, to D&D. Oh. And I've DM'd now for one of her daughters, and I've also DM'd for her and her wife. Uh, we used to have a D&D game where it was my husband, my sister, her wife, and then their dog, Biscuit. Biscuit played too? Yes. <laughs> And How do I not know this story? Yeah, so I, I tweeted about it once. This was a real thing. So uh, Virginia, who was in our group, Virginia is, is my sister's wife, uh, she was playing this druid who had this wolf animal companion named wow. Vega. And Biscuit, who was the dog, would always sit at our feet while we were playing D&D. And we noticed this amazing thing. Anytime someone said the name Vega, Biscuit would bark. No. Yes. Oh, that's weird. And so we're like, oh, Biscuit is playing Vega. And oh, so my that, God. Which then made us all, even me as the DM, I was like, oh, my God, I can't ha- let anything bad happen to Vega. No, you cannot. Because, because Vega is Biscuit's character. Yeah. <laughs> you can't kill the dog's character. No. Oh, my God. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I recommend if uh, anyone out there, if you have dogs and cats, See when you play D&D if they respond to what's going on. I, I believe that my cat does enjoy D&D because when we've played at home before, she gets on the table a lot. They can't really resist dice. Right. But she just likes to sit there and just like, it's your turn now. And now it's yours. <laughs> and then occasionally like bat the dice or something. But she's always like involved. She loves stories. And, well, and, and I've noticed with dice uh, – with D20s in particular, our cat, Cheshire, he, he has all sorts of great, you know, toys made for cats. Right. But a couple of times a D20 has made it on the ground. Oh, my gosh, does he want to roll that die? Oh, yes. He bats it all over. And it, 
It helps that we have hardwood floors, so yeah. that die is just shooting across the dining room into the kitchen. Do you ever just check to see what he rolled, just out of curiosity? I know, but I should. I know, right? Yeah. I realize that it sounds weird to say, like, my cat loves Dungeons and Dragons. I know she does. <laughs> but, like, she really, anytime, like, if we're doing stories at the end of the night with Quinn, she comes into the room and she sits right next to me and just, like, peers at the book over my shoulder. So I'm like, she might be a dungeon master. Yeah, yeah. I should talk to her about how to DM. I, so our cat also occasionally will do like little read a story at dinner or something. Oh, and, so and the cat, come listen. Yes. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like it's not like she's, oh, oh she's always sits with me whenever I mm-hmm. sit down. She's the, I never see her. But if, when she hears that stories are beginning, she comes into the room. Yeah. And when there's D&D on the table, she jumps on the table. And just watches. Yeah. So someone needs to have a character that is your cat's. Yeah, I never even thought of that. But I guess we will start involving her. But all this time for like 15 years, she's been like, bitch, I want to play. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's wrong? Why are humans so dumb? <laughs> See, no one knew that this episode was going to be about your pets playing Dungeons we and Dragons. We have a new topic. How to DM for your pets. Maybe we should talk about our topic. Yes. The actual topic. Um, this might actually – I f- was reading through some of the, the subjects under this topic, and I'm like, well, you might have to come back and keep talking about it because there's a lot. But um, one of the things that, that is important is table etiquette. And the job should not fall to the dungeon master to be the, the ruler of the table etiquette. Like players should have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And I started thinking about this like – what kind of player am I? Like, would a dungeon master think I was a good player or a bad player? And I'm like, I'm probably, I'm very respectful of rules, and I always feel grateful to the dungeon master for you know doing all this work for my enjoyment. And then I was like, well, sometimes I I look at my phone, and I'm sometimes I talk to the person next to me, and sometimes I zone out when it's not my turn, and then it's my turn. I'm like, oh wait, where are we? And then I started thinking, oh man, I suck. <laughs> I'm, maybe I need to really pay attention to this topic. Um, so as a dungeon master and, and as a player as well, there has to be some things that are just like, oh, stop. What just drives you crazy as a dungeon master? So the biggie is uh, players not respecting each other. Yeah. Uh, I really like it when players listen to each other and allow each other to have a moment in the spotlight. Yes. Uh, and, I mean, honestly, this is also just a thing in, like, meetings and, you know, life. Fa- and family <laughs> life. Because <laughs> uh, it's funny. As DM, you already get the player's attention a lot of the time. Uh, also, you're often role-playing the player's adversaries. So I get it if sometimes the players aren't feeling super chummy with the DM during the game. Right. But... And so that's why I can take it if they're not like being, you know, my best buds during the game when I'm the dungeon master. But I really don't like it if I notice the players are not being respectful and kind to each other and not really, not only giving each other's characters time in the spotlight, but making sure they're all working to keep the game moving in a way that is making everyone have a good time. Yeah. Uh, because. People often think it's like, oh, it's the DM's job to always keep things moving. But players have a powerful role in the tempo of the game, getting to the next fun thing. And 
players sometimes can get very self-indulgent of, all right, now we're going to talk in endless detail about this thing and if, where if they would just read the room, like no one else is interested in this. That, that's <laughs> also a very important life skill. Read <laughs> yes. the room, people. Yeah. Now, that part at least when it comes to tempo, the DM can help because what I will often do if I notice that one or two players are, have sort of hijacked the scene yeah. and no one else is really enjoying it, I can then introduce something, you know, the, you know, the, the equivalent of the Kool-Aid guy breaking through the wall, you right. know, some, the troll just shattered through the wall. Now suddenly everyone has to focus on something. Or if the players, uh, if their characters are split up, I'll switch focus to what's going on with the other people just to make sure people feel involved. Yeah. But there's still, the players have some responsibility in kind of editing in a way what their characters are doing because because they're they are in this open-ended storytelling experience but they're sharing that experience with other people and so i always think you know always go for the most cool highest protein version of what your character wants to do rather than the it's going to this is going to go on for 15 minutes and you know really it was just your character's shopping montage oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> which I have seen. Uh, and and again, my, my home group loves shopping montages, but they're also great at we're all shopping together. Right, yes. yes. If they're all into it, that's great. Yeah, not – because, again, I've seen this where like, all right, we're all getting ready to venture. Oh, wait, everyone, I have something to go do. And then the character goes off and does something. And then, okay, sometimes it's a super secret thing. Right. But, but that would propel the game. That That is probably something that's – Right, like look for opportunities as a player to engage other people, even yeah. in your character's personal business. Like, sure, you maybe your character's going to go pick out the super secret outfit that you're going to wear to the King's Masquerade Ball. Still, bring your friends. They'll tell you if you look good in it or yes, not. Yes, that's also a good lifestyle. <laughs> yes, this is all, this whole, this hard <laughs> session. We're really talking about real life. Yeah, we're just talking about real life. <laughs> Because <laughs> everyone always bring a friend when you go clothes shopping. Yeah, especially for an important event like that. Yes. I mean, that sounds big. Because you, you can't see yourself from every direction. No. Yeah. no. And the lighting is terrible at mm-hmm. some stores. Mm-hmm. So um, I, will, I will refrain from naming a very <laughs> prominent department store here in Seattle. But my God, their dressing rooms are terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I am so – I am – such a stickler about having a shopping buddy, by the way, that if I happen to be shopping for any kind of clothing, including glasses, and I don't glasses have someone very with important. me, I will take photos and send them and like, please tell me, yes. does this work? It's very important. Glasses, I feel like, are definitely something you need a second opinion on. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I've played I, – I always think of this guy when I think of table etiquette. He, I think he was just sent to our group because somebody was like, you need to learn – what D&D is. And he was like, fine, I'll just go play with these guys. And I think he thought D&D was something you win individually. Oh, boy. Because <laughs> he was um, very bossy for someone who, like, didn't know the rules but is an avid gamer and plays a lot of player versus player types of games. Um, so he picked up on rules quickly, but he was, like, telling us all what to do. You stand over there and you should be casting this and what's wrong with it? And, like, it was the worst two hours because all of us were, like, Oh my god, this guy sucks. <laughs> He's not even really part of our group. We don't right. like him. We're we're not having fun. The, the the whole 
and talk about reading the room. The DM did not read that room mm-hmm. because yeah. he let this guy just kind of steamroll all over us. I don't know if he was intimidated. I don't know what the deal was with that. But um, when you get those types of, of players, the like, I, I know how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm going to take this, this whole thing over. Like, what, what the heck do you do with those people? That is a great question. Uh, first, I like to make sure that especially if there are, there's like a new person added to the group or if you're like at a convention and you don't know anyone in the group, right. one of the things I do as DM is always pause and have everyone describe their character. This seems like a super basic thing to do. It's a very smart thing. But you can learn a lot about a person and how they describe their oh, character. Oh, so you're doing this kind of like a, not just for players to get to know one another, you're doing it so you can understand the player psychology behind Yes, okay. especially when I'm DMing at a convention. I actually, I want the other players to be able to imagine what each other char- what each other's characters yeah. look like. So that's, that's a big reason because it's just good. You know, I, oh, I know what, Shelly, your character now looks like and it will make my sense of immersion yeah. better. But I, as Dungeon Master, am actually mostly using that as a chance to just get a read on this person I've just met to see, are there any, am I seeing any warning signs? What would those be? Sometimes people will have backstories, first off, that go on and on and on and on, Mm -hmm. and it's clear, okay, they think this is all about them. And so then I might need to work in a reminder of, hey, since this is a co-op game and you're all working together, uh, you know really kind of push that this is about this is about your characters working as a team okay. uh, and that that your your character yes might have this amazing backstory that's lovely but when we're at the table together it's about the story these characters are creating together yes um, it's also a chance for me to potentially spot something that might be uncomfortable or offensive for people at the table uh, because sometimes in talking about a person's character, they will talk about things in their past or about their character in the present that is like, mm, I don't think this is going to fly here. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe if the expectation was set that let's say this is a kind of rated M game. Uh, you know, sometimes at conventions it's like it's all adults, right? And and if I read the players, people seem okay. But also sometimes at convention games, I'll I'll DM tables where there are kids there, and so that's also a way for me to be like. Mm, that's not really a, a topic we're going to explore uh, today at this table. Uh, you, you actually will say that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I always keep an eye on the other players as well, not just in the introductions but throughout the game. For me, one of the most important jobs as a DM is listening, almost more than talking. We so often associate DMing with talking. Yeah. But I actually think being a good listener is one of the main characteristics of a great dungeon master partly for storytelling reasons because you always want to catch the thread of where the players are going with their imaginings with their narrative that they want to build and sort of take those threads and weave them into a cohesive story and the only way to do that as a dm is being a really engaged listener but it's also important that listening and that watching to make sure it's clear that people are having a good time. Yeah. And most of us know what it looks like when someone's having a good time. They look engaged. They're smiling. They're laughing. But if you suddenly notice you have a player who's withdrawing, who has all the body posture of they're uncomfortable, uh, 
that's a sign for a dungeon master. We need to adjust. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it might not even be something that's going on at the table. Uh, the person might have something going on in their lives that they didn't feel comfortable bringing up. You know, someone in their family might be ailing. Uh, you know, they might have just taken uh, their pet to the vet and they're, they're concerned, you know, oh, what are the test results going to be? I mean, these are all real things, yeah. you know, that affect us. Uh, because, you know, D&D groups bring in all the streams of the players' lives to the one table. And it's not just the characters that are there, but the people behind them uh, bringing everything to that table. And if, it, if it's something where I can't tell what's causing it, I will often have a break at some point and check in with the person. Like, oh, okay. Are, how are you feeling? Uh, you know, is there, is there something in the game uh, that isn't sitting well with you or is there something else you'd like to talk about? How I say it is always dependent on who the person is, how yeah. well do I yeah, know them. Know. Um, I don't want them to feel like they're on the spot you know, or that they're in trouble. You know, it's fine to, you know, we all have bad days. Now, flip side though, is if I observed that they are uncomfortable about something that has transpired at the table, especially if it's because of something one of the other players had their character say or do, and if their character, that other character really is misbehaving, if it's not like offensive in the real world, like if it's just offensive in the real world, I as Dungeon Master will say something yes. to the player. Like that's not cool. Uh, but if it's sort of more an in-game thing where, like, their character is just being this terrible poop, you know, like, they keep murdering all the NPCs that people are trying to talk to and, you know, yeah. and actually work with, or they're stealing all the other characters' money and it's just driving everyone insane. When it's in-world misbehavior that isn't sort of offensive in the real world, then what I love to do is have in-world response. I will have NPCs... And monsters in the world respond to the bad behavior. Oh. I often find that is way more powerful than me as a DM saying something to the player. Well, yeah, because they'll feel like they're getting called out and then maybe get defensive and that's not going to help anyone. Whereas if it's in game, it can actually be a part of the fun. Yeah. Because if, if you know, there is someone just acting the fool and some M NPC is just like, oh, honey, <laughs> I've enough. heard about you. <laughs> <laughs> then, then they might even laugh at themselves. Uh, and uh, there's also another powerful element to that is while at the same time you're actually signaling through the game to the person of like, eh, maybe, maybe pull that back. Uh, you're also oddly... Uh, affirming that in this game there are consequences, which is one of the powerful things about D&D is because it's run by a person who can respond to what's going on, your choices, yeah. your good ones and your bad ones can have real consequences in the world of the game, including when your character's being a jerk, someone in world calling them on it. Uh, and I think, again, it not only it kind of can help to uh, diffuse potentially tense situations, but it can also even inject some humor. Yeah. And again, be a gentle way to just remind people there are consequences. Like yeah. if you keep if you keep misbehaving like this, the the peeps in the D and D world are going to be like, mm -mm. Yep, you ain't be welcome here. <laughs> yeah, no more. I like that because you've you've turned something that's potentially uncomfortable or destructive into a story hook. Yeah, exactly. And and you might also as a DM. 
discover aspects to your own NPCs that you weren't aware of. Because so often we think of our NPCs as almost like a story delivery device. You know, it's like a set set of like androids. (laughs) Must deliver (laughs) news. Uh, They have like a very specific purpose. Uh, But you will then often when you're like, wait, how would this NPC be cranky? Like what sets them off? Yeah, what's then, their story? Then suddenly the NPC comes to life. You um, know, that just inspired it. I'm going to write that down. I think we could do a, a whole segment on NPCs, how to maximize your NPCs. Yeah. But yeah, let's keep going. Yeah. but I, that, So really to sum up a lot of that, I would say DMs, use your NPCs when possible yeah. to help steer what's going on at the table because it also doesn't feel as heavy-handed as sort of out-of-world, out-of-character yeah. saying this this needs to change. If it's happening in the game, it keeps people focused mm-hmm. on the game. Now, there's again, there's a whole other category of misbehavior at the table where if it's like real-world offensiveness being offensive to the players at the table, well, then that might be an opportunity to just say, okay, we're going to take a pause now yeah. and we're going to talk. Um, Do you use safety tools in your games ever? So I use these these techniques I've talked about of really listening, getting people to talk about their own characters. Those are sort of the tools I use. Um, I haven't used like the X card, which right. some people use, uh, but I think that's an especially useful tool or tools like that uh, for convention play. Yeah, yep. Basically anywhere where you don't know the people that you're with. Yeah. Uh, that and also... If you're a dungeon master who, you know, you feel comfortable telling a story, but you didn't really sign up to sort of be a referee of the player's behavior at your table, the X card can be a great tool uh, where, you know, if for anyone who's listening doesn't know what it is, it's just, it's a card that sits in the table. And if something happens uh, in the game or in conversation among the, the people at the table that makes someone feel uncomfortable, they can reach out and touch that card, and that's a signal to the DM, okay. Stop. Stop. No uh, questions asked. Yeah. We're moving on. And we'll move on. And, and, and that's, that is such a crucial part of it is the no questions asked. We're not going to interrogate the person. Right. Now, why are you uncomfortable? Why do you not like child abuse? Please explain. <laughs> right, right. And like, no, we're going to – that means, okay, we'll move on. And the beauty is Dungeon Masters because we have literally – worlds at our fingertips is we can just shift to something else. Right. Uh, just, you know, move right along. Uh, so, yeah, I am a fan of that kind of thing, especially when you're playing with strangers. Definitely. Uh, I The main reason I personally don't r- usually use them is simply because I'm comfortable yeah. confronting somebody if I have to. Um, but I don't think anyone should put themselves in that position no. if that is not a comfortable place for them to be in. Yeah, I guess that's also a a question is empowering how you empower your players. Like if you don't have like the X card in front of you, if even if you're a group that is familiar with each other, but how do you empower players to feel to be able to say like not cool, I don't want to talk about this. Cuz like you're obviously instilling something in that group that you're DMing for. Like you're confident in saying we're right. not going there. Right. But how did you make your players also feel like there's a, we're comfortable playing together. We're comfortable stopping things from going too far. So 
again, it's different when I DM for strangers versus when I yeah. DM at home. Because when I DM at home, or even when I DM at Acquisitions Incorporated, it's like I know the players. Right. I know what boundaries will be pushed. Yes, and I and, <laughs> and I know what they like. Uh, yeah. So it it actually makes my job as DM very easy in those contexts because I know what these people like. I know in general what's not going to be comfortable for them. Uh, when it comes to strangers. One of the ways I often make it so that there isn't really an opportunity usually for people to misbehave or cause discomfort is if I'm doing a convention game that's only 90 minutes to two hours, I just make sure it's pretty much like nonstop action and NPCs saying, NPC saying, oh my God, this guy is falling, help. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, so because especially when you're having those sorts of really focused D&D experiences, I think it's often best as a DM to just like, let's just get into what is the heart of this adventure. Right. Uh, because typically it's in, it's in those, those times where things are a little less unstructured, players... Yeah start having a bit more control over the pacing, I find that's often when things can go sideways, especially with a group of strangers. Whereas, again, if it's just like, oh, my God, here's you know one problem after another that we have to solve as a group, that's a powerful way to unify them. Yeah. It's a powerful way to get them focused on the game and not figuring sort of each other out or accidentally offending each other. Would you use that tactic too if you were having if you were having trouble and I honestly I can't imagine you having trouble keeping players engaged at your table but say like you a dungeon master notices like oh my god like put your phone down or like why are you falling asleep in between your turn like is that a, a tactic too like just keep them engaged like just keep stuff happening to them so they have no choice but to cuz like there's always there's some players that don't like the narrative stuff. Right. I, I've played yep. with them. They're like, oh, more story. Mm-hmm. It's so boring. Let's go kill something. Right. And then of course there's the people who don't really like the combat part. They just want to tell the story part. But I, that's a separate question. When you have those two groups, but we can talk about that. But how, um, like, if you have people that seem like they're becoming disengaged for whatever reason, what do we do? That's my biggest fear. Like if I know, if like I see people like being bored mm-hmm. of my adventure, I'm gonna just I will die. So it it's it is my greatest fear too, and it's why I'm always ready to for a scene change. Uh, okay. So for the situation to change in some way, you know, oh my god, there's suddenly freak weather. The monster bursts through the wall again. The Kool Aid yeah. guy showing up. Uh, you know, oh my gosh, this NPC you you care about is in trouble, or. The wizard that you know, she just called you up via sending and, you know, oh, you now need to go deal with this problem that just popped up. Oh, my gosh, you're on the crowded street and this carriage just toppled over and help. You know, right. the people are hurt. I'm always looking for ways to inject something going on in the world if I notice people's attention is flagging. Uh, it's clear, like, whatever's going on is just not their thing. It's like, all right, let's get this exciting again. Part of what helps me do that is my mindset as a DM is almost never that I sort of set up a situation in advance and then just guide my players through it. I think that's actually what's one of the dangers of, especially when we do dungeons and like you you have this map and you've pre-placed everything and it's almost this idea of like, okay, here's my dungeon dollhouse. Right. And now I'm going to basically take everyone on a tour through our dungeon dollhouse. And that that can work, 
but it can also end up being really dull if people are going through it really slowly or you know they're just being super hesitant about going through that door versus that door yes uh or if you have people who are just like not that interested in exploration so that's why I always try to think of even a dungeon, but it's especially easy to do this with like a city or you know a floating castle or or some of the other environments where D and D adventures can occur. I always try to think of what are the living, moving aspects of this place, because people aren't just going to sit in a room and wait for people to show up to kill them. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, unless they have a death wish or, yeah. like, what are they doing? You know, and that, like, there's no reason that because either I, if it's an adventure I designed or if I'm running a published adventure, there's no reason that just because it says that there are three bugbears are in room J, that doesn't mean they're always there. Yeah. And so if things are getting boring over here in this in this T-junction because the group just will not make up their minds, well then, okay, here come the bugbears. Yeah, uh, and we will help you yeah, make I, up your mind. <laughs> exactly. And so I will do that kind of thing often. Uh, you, you know, even, even sometimes when I'm running uh, Adventures League adventures where, you know, it's all preset, I'll mess with the adventure if I need to to keep things moving, keep things engaged. I'm like, oh, the fun thing is actually three rooms down here, but at the rate these guys are going, they're never going to get there. Oh, so yeah. I'm just going to have the fun leave that room and meet them out here in the hallway. Bring the fun to them. Yeah. And yeah. That, and that, that's, the, that's another important tip is just remember, DM, you're not bound by what you prepared. Or if, again, you're using a published adventure, you're not bound by what's on the page. Take it as a tool and then play with it. Move, basically, move the things around in yes. the dungeon dollhouse modular exactly okay um i'm wondering if you as a dungeon master have ever found somebody's character just really annoying (laughs) like not them as the person playing it but the character is like oh my god i cannot sit at this table with this person for two hours this character i want to kill this character (laughs) so i I don't actually think that has happened to me as a dungeon master. It has happened to me as a player. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Someone else's character uh-huh. just annoyed the shit out of you. Yeah. But then, then I, just, I just keep my cool and focus on having a fun time. Because whether I'm DMing or playing, I, I always keep in mind, again, it's a co-op game. Yeah. This is about everyone following their bliss. They're not doing any harm. Uh, I even try to find some amusement in it. Yeah. You know, like... I'll, you know, that's a choice. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> your character can be annoyed by them, and that can just be a new dynamic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would be more concerned as a DM if I noticed that someone's character choice was annoying everybody else. Okay, then what would you do? Probably between sessions, I would talk to the person and say, okay, this thing you're doing, I get it. It amuses you, but maybe we could dial it down just a little bit because we don't want the rest of the group to just get up and leave and then we don't have a campaign anymore. Right. Uh, you know, maybe maybe you can keep doing that thing you really enjoy, but just, you know, tone it down. Tone it, tone it down a bit. I wonder if there's anything you could do. It depends on, I guess, what the thing is. If, like, an in-world thing, like, maybe they have this really stupid battle call that, like, whenever <laughs> combat occurs, they, they do this thing. That, that you could give them some, I don't know, like, now there's some demon around that gets triggered every time they hear like the clucking of a chicken (laughs) (laughs) so don't cluck like a chicken well and that uh 
I do occasionally if people do something that is like sometimes people have jokes and it's like, okay, it was funny the first two times, <laughs> but on time 20, it's like, oh my God. Um, I will sometimes have, that's another case where I might have an NPC sort of intervene uh, with their eye rolling or their sass of like, really? Yes. <laughs> this again? <laughs> it's not you. <laughs> no. You know, another cat story, that reminds me like Bart and I sometimes use our cat to tell each other like what we're doing that's really annoying. Like my cat would be like, oh my God. Look at how you loaded the dishwasher. <laughs> Why would you put that there? And I'm just in the background like, Zini, you're so mean to him. <laughs> that's, that's what, if Philip was having Chesh talk to me, that's what he would have Chesh talk to me about, is loading the dishwasher. There's always like, there, yep. that's a, a big contentious issue in any marriage. Yep. There's always one person that like really cares about it. And then the other one's like, what? It's in the dishwasher. Exactly. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But, but, but it does. I mean, f- <laughs> Philip is a <laughs> Philip is a set designer and architect, and he has strong feelings about how efficiently things can be loaded into that dishwasher. Oh, me too. <laughs> we could talk. We. I was always thinking, I'm like, I'm going to start an Instagram channel of like bad dishwashing loading. And I know there's going to be people like me and Philip that are going to be like, oh. I'm just going to scroll this all night, and it's just going to like raise my hackles. But <laughs> and then like the right way to do it, the before and the after. Um, See, I, I do at least acknowledge his way is better. Well, but, that's good. But I, I just... You just don't care. Well, no, the thing is, is I do care, and I've tried a bunch of times. Oh. But it's still never as good as how he wants it. So he will just walk over and be like, go ahead. Yep. And he'll rearrange the thing. It, it's no skin off my nose. Yeah, uh, I know. I'm not going to fight him on it. I do that too right in front of Bart. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to move these. Going to put this over here. Yes. Yeah. He's a good sport about it. Oh, so much. Maybe we can use some, some table etiquette to deal with that too. Um, I know this, some of these questions came from people on, on Twitter, and I know that they were very, they cared very much about having these answered. And I want to try to get through as many as we can. But let's see. Kind of talked about that. Uh, kind of talking about that. That's good. Uh, okay. 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 What if you're the problem, Dungeon Master? What if, like, sometimes you're just not on your, your game, yep. pun intended? Mm-hmm. What do you do to, like, get yourself, like, get the, the juices flowing in? So, first thing is I try to be in touch with how I'm feeling about DMing my home game well before anyone shows up at the house. And if I am just not into it, I'll cancel the session. You will? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because... Well, you I mean you should. You yeah. have that and, and, freedom to do that. And because this goes back to me, like, it's a game. We play D&D because we love it. Yeah. We play because we like getting together. It's all about us following, you know, our D&D bliss together. And if I, as the person who's sort of pulling it together as the dungeon master, am yeah. just not into it... It's better to just say, mm, not, not tonight. Not today. Uh, sometimes we'll still get together and we might play a board game I was say, or, like, or go, out, go out and get dinner. Maybe a little Dungeon Mayhem. Dungeon, we, in fact, we've played Dungeon <laughs> Mayhem before. You know I love this game. I know you do. I've like introduced it to so many people. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, because it, it, often, and I, one thing I love about... Uh, the sort of sad story of how many DMs force themselves to DM even when they're, they're not actually up to it is I love that at the heart of it 
is this desire to hang out together. And yeah. so there's a sweetness there. And I just encourage DMs who are listening, hang on to that piece, but don't, don't torture yourself and make yourself DM when you're not up for it. Just hang out anyway and play something else. Right. That's, that, you're right. At the crux of it, that's what we all want to do. Yeah. We want to be together. If we play a game, that's great. But we all just want to be together. Now, there are the other situations, though, where you maybe don't realize until you've already started the session yeah. that, oof, you are really off your game today, Jeremy. Uh, in, in the few cases where that has happened, I've shortened the session and just try to, like, get us to a cool ending as quickly as possible and then, like, and we're going to end right there. And again, maybe now we'll go play something else right. or we'll go out and get a drink. Uh, and look forward to the next session. Yes. Uh, so to me, it's you know it goes back to what I was saying earlier about really listening to each other, paying attention to each other. That also includes paying attention to oneself as the DM. Yeah. Like, are you enjoying this? It, how is this going for you today? Uh, I think that's an important question for us to ask ourselves. And it's important for for players to also pay attention to their dungeon master. And if you notice that your DM is kind of off their game, is there anything as a player that you could do to help? I think one thing players can do is uh, they actually have some of the same techniques available to them as the DM does. They can suddenly introduce something amusing by having their characters do something. If they realize the DM is getting testy because they've been dithering about what to do next for like the last 20 minutes then maybe decide what to do next and yes. stop, uh, stop you know, tugging at the DM's last shred of patience. Uh, it goes both ways. Uh, and also players, if you just think, oh boy, our DM this week, she looks like you know, she didn't get any sleep the night before. Or, hey, we know, uh, you know she, she's been on deadline the last week in the real world. Maybe we actually to say, hey, after like the first hour or so, that was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Let's pause there. Maybe we can do something else. Yeah. Uh, also, but sometimes, you know what? It could also just be a simple pick-me-up. You know, one of the things I love that one of my players does, and he does it all the time, not when I'm just feeling bad. It's just a part of our ritual in my home game. It's usually about midway through any session. He'll get up, and we always DM it at our house, but he, you know, he feels at home in our house. He'll go into the kitchen, and he'll make me a cocktail. And he'll bring it to me as the DM. You know, your DM. I love this guy. Yes. Oh, and he makes a great old fashioned. Oh my god. Uh, uh, you know, your whoever your DM is, they might they might not be into cocktails, but I bet there's something they would love for you to bring them midway through a session. Yes. Whether it's a snack, or an offering. Yeah. Or or reminding the DM because sometimes DMs. Uh, will feel so responsible for everyone's fun. Oh, yes. That they'll just like keep powering through. Sometimes players, you actually need to give your DM permission to take a break. Yeah. Like, and I, I don't mean like, you know, break for multiple sessions. No, I mean like take a 10-minute break. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like like it's okay to stand up from the table for 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. Stretch your legs, get something to eat, uh, chit-chat a little bit, and then resume play. Uh, now, some DMs are great about regulating that kind of thing. Uh, but when I was a younger DM, I was often lousy at that, of like working breaks into, oh, yeah. into a game. Whereas now, it's a regular thing. You know, I think especially if we're having like a three or four hour session. You definitely we, need a break. We need some breaks in there. Self-care. Yeah. Self-care for the DM. And 
I also find the players play better and stay more engaged that way. Like if people are fidgeting with their phones, if their attention is drifting, right. often the remedy is, hey, let's just do something else for five, ten minutes. Yep. Uh, you know, talk about what we were all just watching on Netflix yeah. or whatever video game we were just playing or what's going on on The Bachelor. <gasps> and yes. I did that just for you. Thank you. <laughs> we need uh, more than five minutes here. <laughs> um, then come back and people usually will be refreshed. Uh, there, to me, there's no merit, unless like you're, you're doing a stream game or you're on stage like we are with Acquisitions Incorporated. There's no merit in just powering through, like, Come on. Yeah. This is a yeah, game. It's just, yeah. Yeah, we're here to have we're, fun. We're fine. Um, I'm going to ask two more questions because I know that we're chatting it up here. The first one is, I, as a player, I sometimes get really worried when it's my turn that I'm, I'm going to bore people and I'm going to take too long. And so I'll just end up doing something really impetuous and it's sometimes the wrong thing. And then my turn's over and it's like, oh, okay. Now I'll just wait for everyone else. Um <laughs> Some, but I have played with people who take a really long time, and it's like, did you not know your turn was coming again? That we go in order here, like, yes. make a decision. Yeah, and it, usually at like higher levels when they have more things to do, but they'll be like, okay, so where am I standing exactly, and like how far away from this? And if I try this, could I possibly get that? And like, oh my god, just just shoot your arrow. <laughs> Let's just see what happens here, uh, or. You also sometimes get the entire party that cannot decide, like you said, in like the you come to a junction, which way do you go, left or right, and then you have to send the bugbears after them. So if you're if it's just one player that maybe it's just like, and they're not trying to like be a hog, they're right. just really slow. What do you can you like do anything to encourage that person? So what I often do, especially with large groups of players, is if let's say Clara is taking her turn. I will let Bobby and Susan know their turns are coming up next. Oh, okay. Especially especially if I have noticed in previous battles or other kinds of situations in the game that their attention tends to drift. And if I notice they're not really paying attention between turns, often that just little bit of DM engagement of, hey, your turn's coming up, will kind of get them to, oh, oh, that's yep, right. Yep. And so then when their turn comes, they, they've at least started to think about it. Uh, it, I have once in a great while, and thankfully this is not a technique I've had to use that many times, but if I have somebody, especially in a combat where it gets to them and they just refuse to make a decision, I will eventually just have their turn run out. Wow. Know? Oh, yeah. I and Again, I haven't done it that often, but occasionally I'll be like, so it sounds like maybe you're going to be spending your turn dodging or, you know, or maybe you want to help, uh, use the help action to help out your your friends. Because what I'll do is I won't just say your turn's over. Right. But I, I will basically suggest Have a buzzer. because <clears throat> because if I'm noticing that they are just not coming to a decision, I will offer up the tools that our game already offers for a person who doesn't know what they want to do on their turn, which is you can dodge or you can help your friends. Yeah. Or you can disengage and run away. There are options for that person and but sometimes they don't know that. Sometimes yes. they they're because often the telltale sign is the person is like scanning their character sheet. Like, where's the thing on here that I'm going to do? And they yeah. just can't decide. And and so at that point as a DM, I, I view, you know, part of my job is to help people discover things in the rules that will help 
them, not to like enforce the rules, but just to, hey, you have all these tools available yeah. to you. And one of those tools is just crank up your defense by dodging. Or if you think uh, the person next to you is doing cool things, but you're not sure what to do, well, then use the help action and you just made them even cooler and you're helping yourself in the process. So I, I want to just clarify too, like if it's a new player, I certainly would give them way more freedoms with this and, and, and help them. I wouldn't be like, oh my God, you're so new. (laughs) (laughs) What have you been playing for like 10 minutes? No, but it's like, I, just to clarify, I'm I totally understand people who are getting familiar are going to take longer. Oh, absolutely. Um, this was directed about people who are just like, I'm just really slow. And this is just how I move in real life too. Well, and, and with the with the brand new players, for me, it's a completely different situation because then what I'll often do, if I can, if I see sort of the deer in headlights look oh, yeah. where it's like, oh, oh no, they do not have any idea what to do. No. I will, I will offer up some suggestions. That's good because even when you say, you can do anything, that's <laughs> harming them because right. that is like, no, I right. don't. Now I have no idea what to do. So, yeah. yes. Offering suggestions, I think, is a really good idea. And uh, and it's important, too, when DMing for a new person like that, never offer trap options. I always make sure that the options I'm offering are actually good things for their character to yes. do. Uh, like, don't... I. Uh, that's another important tip when teaching someone how to play don't try to trick them uh, oh god no yeah because i have seen dms do that where it's like that's a part of you know them growing up as a dnd player mm, how about how growing- about <laughs> i know how about let them have a good time they'll learn everything in time yes uh what's funny though is i often find that especially with kids who are playing for the first time that you can do anything it, yes. They totally that get it. Works for them. Yes. I it's more often when teaching the game to adults, I find that they sometimes need sort of a multiple choice list of things to yeah. do. Uh particularly in the time pressured context of combat. Often outside combat they're fine. Because yeah. if it's like, oh, I'm just chit-chatting with people, and then the DM asks me to make an ability check, they get it. They're fine. Uh there's something about as soon as initiative is rolled oh, yeah. and they have a turn and the spotlight is on them, it is often a grace for the DM to say, hey, here's some, some options of things you could do on your turn. You could do other things, but you will be on solid ground if you do one of these three things. Yes. And, but again, often with kids, if you just say, what well, do what do, do you want to do? Do anything you want. They'll, they'll come up with some wonderfully bonkers thing. And then instead your job as DM is like, so what rule, if any, can I use to make this bonkers thing come to life? How much damage does poop have? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure if something Quinn would do. On you, of course. He told me, well, he did a play, like a play in his class. And I was like, you know what? You and I should write a play. What do you want to write a play about? And he was like... Well, obviously pooping, Mommy. <laughs> what else would we write about? I'm like, you're right. What else? <laughs> the new damage type in D&D, poop damage. Poop damage. <laughs> I think if you were playing with kids, that would really work for them. Okay. Um, last question. What would – or does your table etiquette style change when you are DMing live in front of an audience as opposed to your home game? Absolutely. Uh, because when I am DMing live, like for Acquisitions Incorporated, I'm not only being mindful of what are my players enjoying, where do we need to go in the story, but then I'm mindful of 
how is the audience oh, yeah. enjoying this? You have, they're like the an extra player. Exactly. Are they laughing? Are they responding? Are they getting involved? Uh, and so I really do treat them as another player. It's different when you're doing a streamed game on camera and you can't actually see the audience's response. Uh, then you just have to kind of guess and yeah. uh, maybe read feedback between sessions so that you can account for the audience's tastes as, again, that sort of invisible uh, player at the table. But it's why I love doing uh, live games on stage because you know right away if yeah. something's landing with the audience or not. Uh, now, luckily, like with Act Inc., the players are all really funny, they're talented, and so we kind of as a team can respond to that other player, the audience, and make sure we, while we're enjoying playing our D&D game, making sure they're enjoying it too. Yeah, that's good. All really good advice, as I knew that it would be talking to you. I, um, I love talking about DMing. Well, good. Then you can come back because I have a <laughs> lot of questions. Um, but really, thank you so much. I know you're busy, so to take time to come talk about uh, table etiquette has been very, very wonderful. Are you still take, taking questions on Twitter? Do you still let people do that? So, so people are always welcome to shoot uh, D&D questions to me on Twitter at Jeremy E. Crawford. I don't get around to answering, answering a whole lot of rules questions anymore. I've, I've gotten so busy, and we are, we are looking at answering more rules questions in the future in the, the Sage Advice Compendium. So okay. if anyone is wondering, we, we do have plans to update the compendium, uh, which we think is ultimately a better place for people to find answers. You know, having one place they yeah, can go to makes sense. than sort of scouring, you know, in the last five years, did Jeremy ever tweet about X? Yes. Uh, it's not. It'll it, all be in one place. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I do feel a little bit more inspired about this dungeon mastering thing. Well, thank you for having me. Anytime. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I feel like I know about 40,000 more things than I did before we summoned that segment. Good segment. Yeah? If I do say so myself. I know, I think, I think you did a really good job I listening and or a, talking to it. a great it. job <laughs> hosting it or listening to You it. know who else does a really good job? No. Someone whose name starts with an M. Michelle. <laughs> That's you. That's your name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michelle Sutterfield is an amazing person, but Shelly Moo is also great. And also, Matt Mercer. Yes! Is a fantastic individual. We are going to talk to him uh, right now about all the fun things leading up to Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount. Shall we? And Chris Perkins. Oh, yeah, and that guy, too. Yeah. He's really cool. He's new, though. Yeah. (laughs) No, right. He's so young. He's like 14. Yep. He's like a little teen. Child. Yeah, we can't wait. So let's let's ask them into our boudoir, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) But don't open the door very wide for the moths might get in. (laughs) That's the moth sound. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'd like to welcome Matt Mercer to Dragon Talk one more time. Uh, this is uh, number three interview, I think, for you uh, here on Dragon oh, yeah. Talk. Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah. A couple a more, time. and you get a jacket. That's right. 
We keep threatening that for Wolfgang Bauer, but never actually he making keeps a jacket. Coming back and yeah. we're, just, we're like, no, no, it's actually nine. Sorry. It's the, it's the eight timers club. <laughs> Sorry, next time you'll get something. Yes. Uh, but we also have Mr. Chris Perkins here. Yes. Yes. Uh, and we are excited to talk about Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, an excellent book. Uh, that was uh, birthed in some ways uh, through the second campaign of Critical Role. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Our first campaign took place uh, on the land of Tal'Dorei, and that was kind of the hub of where that took uh, that whole story kind of centered around. Uh, the current campaign we've been running for the past two years is pretty much wholly within Wild Mountain, an entirely separate continent, its own societies and uh, unique landscapes and challenges and conflicts and uh, it's been really exciting to explore and I'm super excited for people to have the opportunity to, to learn a lot more about it and see a lot of things that aren't even going to be seen in our campaign. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, people will be able to learn uh, some of the, the secrets that you have not yet even revealed. Is that true? Uh, maybe a, a handful, but I, I also wanted to make sure that uh, the campaign that we're playing uh, didn't lean too much into the information that's in this book. So the, the idea is the the storyline we're playing right now is very unique and tailored to those characters and those players. So they're exploring a lot of the familiar themes and places and, and story elements that are in the book, but nothing to the point where people feel like they're playing the same campaign that we're playing. It is right. instead an open, an open book of so much possibility um, where they can play alongside or entirely new, unique experiences outside of what we're playing right now in our campaign. And Chris, you were you were working with Matt for a long time on on developing what this book was going to to kind of look like and be. Is that right? Well, we had some preliminary discussions at the outline stage about what the book was going to be, and then Matt disappeared for a few months, uh, rally, rallied, rallied an army around him to uh, come up with the, the the text and the the map orders and everything for this book, and then I just sort of swooped back at the end and kind of turned all of that text into, or worked with a number of people here to turn the text into the book form. Uh, just getting it to fit, making sure all the chapters lay out properly, making decisions as needed about what to keep and what to jettison, and working with Matt on those kinds of decision-making moments to, yeah. make, to make sure nothing, nothing got cut that was so sort of intrinsic or important to the, the product that it would not function the way he wanted it to function. Got it. So it was like a, a real melding of minds. Being yeah, like, oh, here's the here's, exactly. here's the creative storytelling, but then here's the the D and D kind of book right. sensibilities, and then yes. they crash together, and they right left yes. a baby book underneath it. But a exactly. three hundred and four page baby. It's Indeed, a, it's a big baby still, with a poster cut, map on the back. And you cut how much did you cut from this? Oh, it probably amounted to I want to say about sixteen or so pages okay. of material. Okay. Nothing, nothing too major. Was yeah. that hard for you, Matt? Were you did uh, you did you fight him on some of that? No, nah, <laughs> no, nah, nah. I for for one thing, I my level of experience in this sphere compared to the experience of Chris and Crawford and, and these people is much smaller. And uh, this has been very much a learning experience of me wanting to make sure that it's a collaboration. As part of that collaboration, yeah. they know better than I do as far as what should be in a final product. If there's something I'm really passionate about, I'll, I'll definitely voice it. Right. But um, and, and with any sort of creative endeavor, you know, part of it is killing your babies, as they say. You know, there yep. are things that you just have to let go. And it's one thing to have it just be let, to just cut, and you're like, it's cut. And you're like, whoa, okay. But it's been really awesome about, like, here's why. You know, if there is a way we can fit it in, let's talk about it. If not, this, these are the reasons. And you, it's like, yeah, totally, I get it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a better 
more concise product without some of this kind of floating riffraff that we didn't necessarily need. We had to make sure there was room for lots and lots of great art. We were very, very fortunate. Yes. One of the most interesting things that we got out of it really was a pool of terrific critical role artists that we can work with again on future D&D products. Very nice. Yes. We're excited so, about that. Yeah. I was really excited to hear about uh, Devin Rue. Uh, we had her on uh, yeah. the podcast before. We share a birthday. Yes. We do. And, and she uh, made cr- uh, amazing maps for this. Yes, the poster map and all of the interior location maps. Very yeah. exciting. Devin knocked it out of the park. This is a very immersive <laughs> critical role experience from cover to cover. I hope so. I hope people like it. <laughs> yeah. For folk, I mean, this, this may seem like a strange question for uh, as large of an audience as you have, but for mm-hmm. folks who may be coming into this with, uh, with, with new eyes and new uh, uh, thoughts about what is Wildmount, what would you say is the, the tenets or the, the major themes that goes through playing in this continent? Perfect, yeah. So, so to enjoy this book and the contents of it, you don't need to know anything about Critical Role or the campaign that we play. This is a book that is designed for anybody who wants a world to run a D&D campaign in. If you watch the show, there's a lot that will be familiar to you and a lot of you know context you'll have that maybe others wouldn't, but it is wholly the entire continent of Wildmount at your disposal to explore and customize and pull from and make your own campaigns flourish and live. Uh, the continent itself is broken down into four major regions, I guess you would call. There's uh, the Menagerie Coast, which is a, a coastal area along the Lucidian Ocean that has a series of island chains around it where like a very nautical-type setting is easy to, to run for a campaign. There's Western Wynandir, which is where the Dundalian Empire is, a very much kind of, uh, say, Eastern European-themed or uh, Prussian-esque empire that is more classic fantasy, though a little darker, a little more gothic, a little more uh, intense than your colorful, uh, you know, happier, you know, fantasy scapes you see in a lot of modern media. Um, to the east, there is Eastern Wynandir, which is where Jorhas is, which is this broken landscape of wild, weird uh, fields and mountains and uh, swamplands that was once destroyed by an ancient battle of the gods, and as such, it is filled with unique waste folk and and you know monstrous folk, as they're called in many books. A society that is not intrinsically human or your standard human dwarf elf. It is goblinoids. It is bugbears. It is dark elves, and they're not evil. They're just their own society. And then to the north, there is the. Uh, the Biting North, which is a lot of more of the Arctic cold landscapes where a lot of ancient mysteries and history has been long buried under ice and snow and the uh, few survivors do so outside of the major societies and sometimes the major laws that exist within there. And so in this mix, there's a lot of opportunity for conflict, there's a lot of opportunity for mystery and discovery and a lot of really unique challenges to be had. And this book is kind of our our love letter of putting our minds together and, and giving it to the world to do with it as they wish. I love that. That's I mean, amazing. Yeah. It feels like um, a, a great sandbox for people to be able to jump into, uh, even without all the pre-knowledge of what's been happening in, in Critical Role. Like it just, here's, here's an interpretation of a fantasy world, um, and in some ways, as you're talking about it, and, and in some conversations that I've had with Chris in the past, it's really amazing to see like, you know, this was a, a homebrew in some ways that took elements from, from D&D's past and combine them with your own ideas and, and, and uh, here it is in wrought in, in beautiful glory in this book. And it's kind yeah. of a, 
uh, a great aspiration for dungeon masters out there to uh, create something as as living and breathing as this. Um, but it also feels very much like uh, uh, you know what we would have imagined. 30, 20 years ago playing and reading about D&D books and be like, oh, I want to do this, but I want to make it my own unique spin. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it, that's exactly kind of what I wanted it to be. I never intended originally for this to be a book, of course. You yeah. know, they, you, when you create your homebrew worlds, it's, it's the idea of you're building it for your players, you're building it just for your own creative outlet, to be honest. You know, a lot of people, when they've been dungeon mastering for a while, or even beginning and they just have that creative writing you know, tick in their brain, you have these 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 imaginative landscapes and these worlds and these people that you just need to put somewhere. And D&D is a wonderful outlet for that sort of creative energy. Um, so having this world that was homebrewed and created in some ways collaboration with my players and their, their character stories, and then have the opportunity to put it together with Wizards of the Coast and, and these wonderful people has been extremely surreal. Um, ex- I cannot express how surreal. And then like, <laughs> holding the physical book in my hands just when in this past week has been a very emotional experience. Yeah, I bet. And, uh, how, how many um, tear stains are on those uh, on those pages right <laughs> now? Oh, I, I ensured to wear a tear guard when I was reading it. <laughs> 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 Nothing shall touch this book. Exactly, but no, it's it's been it's been really wonderful, and I'm I'm really excited about it, and I really hope people enjoy it. So it, it three, is the first D and D campaign setting expressly designed for fifth edition. Oh, oh that's interesting. Oh I yeah, didn't think about that. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you. Oh yeah. Just was it this week, Matt, where you retweeted <laughs> I a tweet? Think you didn't tell him that uh, from 2014, <laughs> where you had just been like, "Hey, this fifth edition thing is pretty cool. I'm going to check it out." Yeah, yeah. somebody picked that up. Like a, a six-year-old tweet when I first got my player's handbook mm-hmm. of fifth edition. I was like, "I'm kind of liking this edition." And it's just weird. <gasps> oh and my surreal. god. Yeah, Greg mentioned in our intro that it had been about five years. For, or you, you, Critical Role has an anniversary coming up because yeah. Greg started at Wizards right around the same time that Critical Role launched. Yeah. So he's yeah, we're coming up on our five year anniversary. That's crazy. It's only like part yeah. of it just seems like only five years, but then that doesn't seem like that. I mean, it just doesn't seem like that long, but it yeah. feels like it's been forever. That's because 2019 was six years long. <laughs> yeah, that's because Physically. January 2020 was six years long. Yeah. Physically, it feels like it's been 20 years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mentally, mentally, pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> It's been three years. I'm curious. Feels what... like 30. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah, well, it's yeah. been Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, so I'm curious about how much of this world was already fleshed out when you were writing this versus how much of it you just decided to create on the spot and fill these 304 pages? Uh, like, thematically and outlined, a lot of it was already, you know, structured um, in broad strokes and ideas. Like, I knew what the overall look of the continent was, the overall themes of the different societies and uh, the conflicts inherent there and some of the mysteries and kind of historical ways that I've ingrained in Alexandria as a whole, which is kind of the overall world that this, this setting is, takes place in. Um, but, and, and, and some of the stuff I'd fleshed out for our campaign before this, this book opportunity even came up. Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of the things that aren't central to like the Dundalian Empire and the Menagerie Coast and Jorhas, things like to the Biting North and to the Miskat Strand and, and a lot of the, the more detailed spaces that we weren't yet going to explore in the campaign, I had to create for this book in advance, you know. Uh, any Dungeon Master knows it's really hard to build everything before you play because you'll go crazy and they'll put you in a room. Um, 
What was it like working with uh, Joey and James and Chris? Because I hear they're all really difficult. They're they're a challenging. Yeah, bunch. they uh, seem like <laughs> they are. These are the I, freelance writers uh, <laughs> who contributed a lot of uh, to this. Correct. Yeah, they're. Um, I, I'd worked with Joey previously on on uh, our first like Tell guide we did with Green Ronin years ago, and he was marvelous and and really kind of pulled me out of a bind of I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. <laughs> Um, then this book came up and I was like, okay, I know a little more what I'm doing, but I still need help. And, uh, so brought Joey and brought Chris and, and James and they were all been phenomenal. And Hannah Rose, who helped copy edit and, and edit the book, all of them helped contribute so much to, to keeping me sane and, and just providing their own fresh perspective to elements of the book and creating things in ways that inspired me as well. And, it was just a very wonderful collaborative process. I, I think, from my experience, and I hope they had a similar experience, um, there was there was there wasn't a point where I wasn't excited for everything we were doing together. And when we would talk weekly, we would meet up uh, via video conference weekly to discuss what we've done, and kind of disseminate what we needed to do. And we were all so excited during those meetings and returning to show each other what we worked on. So it was just it was energetic, and and the the, the quality I think really shows. That's awesome. I might. Can we give them shout-outs by, by their last names, too, just in case people don't know <laughs> yeah, who, who Joey is? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Joey or James Hake. Um, I think it's at James Hake on Twitter. I don't know what his actual Twitter handle is. Uh, James Intracasso and uh, Chris Lockie are the writers, and then Hannah Rose as the editor. And they're, they're all brilliant. Um, I can put up a tweet with information when the book comes out, too, and you guys can check out all everything they've done because they all have their own plethora of work previously. Uh, I love. I mean, I, I love everybody you mentioned, but Chris Lockie is uh, uh, someone that I've just seen online a bunch of times. We met in person uh, uh, at a couple of events. I think actually at the uh, the Force Gray um, Lost episode uh, was yeah, where we yeah. met face to face for the first time, and I think it was even before he was working uh, very closely with you. But yeah, I was really really excited to hear that he was contributing to this book, and uh, it really shows in, in the yeah, writing. So he, he's done a lot of work with Cobalt Press, and uh, he he's one of those one of those creators where. Uh, his his design aesthetic can go all and anywhere it needs to go, but he really loves and enjoys and thrives in spaces of like darker, stranger, kind of almost cosmic horror themed mm. elements. And so I was like, oh, I have a region for you to take a look at, and I just let him go, and it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So is that how you you guys work together? Like, did everybody flesh out a different region, and then that's what you, you guys came back with and talked about, like? In this region, this is what I'm thinking. Uh, and a, a lot of it went that way. Like I, I the main, three main regions that I fleshed out were the the Dwindalian Empire, Jorhas, uh, and the Menagerie Coast. So those are the ones that were kind of more central to the campaign too that we've been playing. I knew those very intimately. Uh, the the Miscath Strand, also known as Blightshore, and elements of the Biting North, like Isilcross. I had outlined them and you know themed them and kind of broken them down in a, in a much less defined way. I didn't have, you know, the cities written out. I didn't have those locations very thoroughly detailed. I had just kind of the broad strokes. And so I got to give one of those, each of those little regions to Chris and to James and say, go, go be creative, have fun, come back and we'll tweak and change from there. And it was just a really cool collaborative process well, to just kind of let them go. What an amazing assignment. The yeah. go, just did you give them any parameters, anything like this must-haves or don't-dos, or how, uh, I, like, how I, do you I, work together I, so that they don't all do the same thing? No, I, I gave them the, all the outlines and themes and everything that I had previously developed okay. in those settings. So I, I gave them the name, I gave them the history, I gave them the general feel, you know, like for Isle Cross, it's the 
you know, it's this frozen, solitary north of anything can happen, but it's locked beneath the ice or fog of mystery. Um, you know, uh, desolate, isolated locations and what that can do to the individuals that live there. Weird magics and, oh, you know, strange, so cool. released, arcane mysteries that can alter and mutate the world in ways you don't expect. And like that, go, go from there. And then he gets to create in that space and come back with where his brain runs. That's so with. cool. That's just what you do, like, all the time. Yeah. You just make stuff yeah. up. True. Oh. Uh, so what was it like being, I mean, uh, you weren't a writer on this one, Chris. You were more of a... Just sort of a guide. A guide, yeah. yeah. So what, what was an example of, of, of a guide that you, a guideline that you would give or be like, hey, we usually do this, so this is a little bit different, but maybe if we went a little bit more this way, uh, it might be really great for fans, if there is anything like that. Oh, I can't think of anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, like, what, for me, it was more like just making sure that everything, there was enough information there that the that DMs, picking up for the first time, or players, depending on the section of the book, would have everything that they felt they needed without having too much information that it suddenly became intimidating or daunting. And other things that in, I was more or less involved in was just making sure that, the, for instance, the monsters were in their sort of most playable state, that they retained the essence of what they could do, but the, me- the mechanics and the text were simple and streamlined. So a lot of my work was kind of hidden like it's it's it when you look at the book it's not like you can just point and say oh chris did that i didn't do any of that that's all matt and and company um my stuff is all invisible right but that's that invisible hand yes. probably was is mm-hmm. is yes uh, like like we discovered like the the gazetteer is a hundred plus pages long so one of my tasks in laying out the book was realizing that uh we had to trim some of that down because it was even longer and it was just kind of ending badly and there were bad breaks all the way through it where titles were like too low on the page and so to nudge things up and to get titles sitting properly in the right places you have to make decisions about formats and uh, just to make the book more presentable and more digestible that's kind of where where I was involved the most and that's the kind of stuff you only get by having produced several books like this correct and then there, the other process that we haven't really talked a whole lot about and Matt can also talk about this because this was kind of new to him is the art review process oh yeah, yeah. Um, we have a system internally for reviewing art uh, using a database and we review art at the sketch stage and the final stage but both Matt and I were involved in the art reviews Matt generally making sure that it hit the emotional beats and the content beats and me and Kate on the back end making sure that it hit D&D beats. Right. Art, Kate Irwin, art director. Kate Irwin, art director. Yeah. Extraordinaire. Who <laughs> wrote the art orders? Did that come from you, Matt? Uh, that came from me. Okay. Uh, which uh, was the second time I've done art orders for anything ever. And learning the, the very uh, well-developed, long, proven process that Wizards of the Coast does their art orders was, was a really great learning experience for me because... At first, like, oh, I, I want a pretty picture with these things in it. It's like, no, no, you have to be very specific with everything, not just beyond the content of the art itself, but also the mood you want it to evoke, the feeling you want the reader to to look at and then feel pulled out from inside them. And so, um, yeah, so I, through yeah, so, and being inspired by that was cool. I was just going to say, like, uh, uh, for folks who may not know the, the inside baseball of things, an art order actually is a description of a paragraph of text, essentially, about, like, what you think... A uh, image should look like on this page, and then you, we hand that to an artist to, who gets commissioned and then creates that image, and then it goes through the review process. Yeah. So the speci- specificity in that paragraph 
is important because otherwise you just end up with like, well, I don't, I don't know what I'm drawing or the artist doesn't but have you also direction. But you also need the right kind of specificity. Um, right. It's not just hitting them with a bunch of details because you have to be sort of short and succinct because um, artists can only internalize so much information before it starts to get in the way. Yeah. And the other thing we can't do is compose the LO for them. We can tell them the elements of the illustration, but we leave the composition to the artist. So it's a little bit like dungeon mastering an artist, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Very much so. It, it, and that's what's kind of the cooler, one of the cooler aspects of that whole process was finding that fine line of being specific in the things that you felt were important as guidelines, and then seeing where the artist took it and ran with it. Kind of similar to how I did with some of the writers in the project, and then having them come back and surprise you and be like, "This is so much cooler than what I thought." Or this is really really cool. A couple things here I want to, we need to tweak to make sure that it fits these other things that I maybe have forgot to mention or wasn't clear about, or just getting us on the same page. And that back and forth note process um, was was really really painless. The artists were incredible to work with. Kate was so uh, wonderful to to help help me through that entire process. And uh, the illustrations in this book, the art in this book is they're they're, they're phenomenal. I'm uh, I'm still blown away. Uh, I, I, I love look, paging through it and looking at the artwork, and I can't wait for people to uh, to check it out. Uh, it does feel like a different flavor of Dungeons & Dragons than what's been presented in, in uh, the D&D 5th edition books. Even, you know, very different than Acquisitions Incorporated or, or Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. Um, and I think that's really important. I like that, I mean, you mentioned how this is the first one designed for 5th edition in some ways. And uh, I, I, I just love that we're infusing all these different flavors of D&D that people can uh, take and pull from and, and, and bring into their own game. Yeah. The other thing I like is in a world book or a book that talks about a world and describes it in detail, putting more emphasis on environments is yeah. important. Often in our books, we tend to lean pretty heavily into character. Yeah. And uh, in a book like this, you just want to see these magnificent places and how they life. and yeah. how they differ from 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 other worlds and other yeah. things like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's. I mean, you mentioned how dungeon masters are obviously going to be able to take a lot of inspiration from this book, but there are some player focused uh, sections. Uh, what are what, what are what are the subclasses that people uh, could get excited about for this book? Yeah, so um, we have in, in our character options area of the book, we have three new subclasses that are based around this esoteric magic source called Dunamancy, which was introduced by the, the Kryn dynasty, the, the Drow society that exists in Jorhas. It's based around uh, potentiality, potential power and magic and probability, which then can manipulate time to an extent, you know, localized gravity, entropy, things like that. And so um, there are a number of new spells that expand into the themes of Dunamancy, and there are three subclasses that are based around its use. There's a martial fighter subclass called an Echo Knight, which uses this Dunamis energy to pluck an unrealized self of one, like of a shadow clone of themselves from a dying timeline, and use it in tandem with them on the battlefield. So imagine having like a shadow, an Echo, a clone of yourself, a fighter, and you can share elements of location and attacks and other features between the two of you before it gets dispersed or destroyed. And so that's the Echo Knight subclass. Then we have two wizard classes. One that is the, the Chronergist, which uses uh, Dunamis and other forms of, of arcane magic to manipulate time in subtle and localized ways, um, both for themselves, their allies, and enemies. Um, and then we have the, uh, the Graviturgist, which is a, a wizard who focuses on manipula- mani- manipulation. Blah, blah, blah. Talk for <laughs> that, word, that word always trips me up, so no worry. <laughs> manipulation of gravity, uh, localized, where it can, it can control the battlefield and 
you know, improve the impact and the damage of weapons that are drawn towards their foes with higher velocity or, uh, you know, crush the gravity of a region to make it more challenging for enemies to traverse or survive. Um, so it's it's got a lot of fun, a little bit of like a, like a uh, I guess we would say a, a physics flair to it, kind of like a quantum and astrophysics flair to some of the magic, which was kind of the, the inspiration for a lot of Dunamancy. And players get to look forward to those. And we have a great chapter called The Heroic Chronicle, which, yeah. which is James Hake's main, or Joey Hake's main kind of baby for this, um, where it allows a player, or even the master for their NPCs or anything else, it allows the player to create a backstory that ties them into Wildmount intrinsically without uh, having to do more than just roll a few dice or pick off charts. That involves discovering how big your family was. It involves uh, what's, what faction you may be tied to initially where you were born and where you grew up, what your favorite foods were based on where you grew up, um, whether you have uh, allies or rivals in the world based on your upbringing and where they might be from. Through a series of pages, you could roll dice or choose, and at the end of just flipping around for 10 pages or so, you have a built, tied backstory to Wildmount that you can then flesh out and play off of and it's just, it's beautiful and super great so for players. Cool. Yes, and it doesn't take the place of, you know, like if you got your own concept for a character and how what their origins are, it doesn't replace that. It's just a handy tool to have if you need to fill in gaps. Yeah. Or you mm-hmm. haven't you haven't fully fleshed out your character. But and to Matt's point, it gives you very specific hooks into Wildmount. I've never met a table I didn't want to roll on. <laughs> I mean, Fate, I here's a table. Here's table. a table of fateful moments. Oh, I'm gonna roll. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what what Shelley gets oh, yeah, here. Okay. All right. Okay. Now you have to. This is a. This is a D20 table, so go ahead. Six. I got a six. Six, your fateful moment. You were the sole survivor when a horde of rampaging monsters raided your village or your neighborhood. You have proficiency in the stealth skill or proficiency with martial weapons, your choice. Clearly, I was with the monsters. I helped plan all that. <laughs> <laughs> Bam! Backstory. What happens. You roll. Uh, okay, I'll roll. Let's see what happens. Uh, two. Two. You know what? I'm going to have you roll on the Mysterious Secrets table, but we'll keep Ooh, the two. I like that. Your Mysterious Secret is, I was the only witness to a cold-blooded murder. In the aftermath, I saw the killer take a gold coin with a ruby inlaid at its center from the victim's body. Oh, man. It looked a lot like your character was, was the cold-blooded say, it killer. Like it yeah. might if you were siding with the monsters. And since, since we're all getting in this action, <laughs> could I bet die? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. I will roll on the Prophecy Inspirations. 17. Oh, the 17. I will stand before Princess Surya Dwendal and briefly hold the fate of the Empire in my hand. I won't realize the gravity of my decision until it is too late. My name is Serena, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) We have created a little campaign I feel a great gravity. (laughs) Stand before me. That's excellent. That is so fun. (laughs) So how how does this interact with backgrounds? Uh, It it feels like a a background plus uh, type of thing. Kind of, yeah. The the, the background, it doesn't replace it. It's just kind of an addendum attached to it. And it's up to the dungeon master to... uh, you know, to incorporate or allow as much as they want to. This is a, a tool for them to to tie their characters into the world if they want to. And it's also a great tool for dungeon masters to create NPCs if you need to. Yeah. You oh, know, that's oh, right. Yes. Time. You can roll up a few of these tables in two minutes and have a really fleshed out NPC that you can incorporate into your next session. Oof. I love the idea also as a to be a dungeon master that pre-rolls in advance and then you hand like your players. Right. Like you kind of you don't, you, you don't get to pick your family, right? No. No. 
I mean, just to give them like do. that kind of. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much when you murder them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I love all that. I love one thing aspect I want because we mentioned the different four different regions uh, as mm-hmm. as part of it being um, introduced. It can be hard for a dungeon master to say like, "Here's the entire continent." Yeah, play in it, uh, but you can. There, there is some stuff in this book, right, where you can uh, start off in one of these regions and kind of explore it in in in, in miniature before you move yeah, out to not other one, places. not two, not three, but fifteen, four. Dang it! <laughs> <laughs> I, I failed Dunamancy when I was four a kid. starter adventures. You want to talk a little bit about those, Matt? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for for those four regions I mentioned, we wanted to make sure that we had a an anchor. Uh oh. Uh-oh. You're frozen. Suspense. Matt is frozen. Dun, dun, dun. He's in the frozen north. Somebody, he's in the bitter north. Somebody has cast a spell. Bum, bum, bum. Point no experience. Oh. oh, did you lose my audio? Oh, are we here now? Oh, you're yes, back now. You're back. Yes? Great. Yep. Okay, sorry. So, uh, for these four regions, we wanted to ensure that we had these anchor points for people to start a campaign if they had a lot of experience or no experience dungeon mastering. And it allowed them to kind of pick a point or their group to pick a point to begin. And so we have one adventure that starts from that brings you from levels one to three in the Menagerie Coast. That's more of a nautical island hopping adventure. If you want that to be your theme, we have one adventure in the Dwindalian Empire that deals more with uh, the local uh, society of Hupperduke, kind of the gnomish town and some subterfuge that's going on. It's more of a, uh, for lack of a better term, an intrigue and almost like Bond villain-like adventure that takes you from levels one to three. But they're gnomes. Have, they're gnomes. Oh, the gnomes in Bond. Oh, I love all that. What would be a... a I, I, I have to take advantage of you being a voice actor. Mm-hmm. What would your, what's your gnome voice for a uh, gnome spy? A gnomish Bond? Yeah. They call me Gunter. Gunter <laughs> Snipe. <laughs> <laughs> try as you might, and many do try. None have caught up to me. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> love it, love it. All right, so what's the... Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And he's got, there's, there's an adventure in the, the Biting North that deals with kind of Isilcross and the Graying Wildlands up there that's uh, more of like that, that colder, isolated, you know, pushing through the elements to solve a mystery and, and a personal personal danger. And then we have uh, an adventure in Jorhas that deals with the heavy conflict between the Dundalian Empire and the Korean Dynasty in which you are going through the swamps with the the roving, mobile, goblinoid city of Urzin, which is all built upon the back of giant horizon back tortoises and having to, to deal with an outpost from the Empire and the dangers therein. So it, you get to pick one of these four different regions, all with their own unique theming, and just jump in and start a campaign there. And if you want to continue a campaign in that region thereafter, you, you can do that, or you could just move on to where all the rest of... Uh, Wild Mountain has to offer. Or you can just take the whole city on tortoises idea and plop that into your own campaign. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's what I love about all these 5th uh, edition setting books is that uh, a clever dungeon master can uh, just pick and pull and, you know, mm-hmm. similar to how you did uh, in building this together, uh, exactly. make, it, make it their own. Yeah, and, the, and that was very much kind of a big push on this too, was to ensure that uh, this setting is great as its own setting, but there are many pieces here that are modular and can be pulled to anybody else's homebrew setting or existing D&D IP setting and make it your own. So it's it's designed to be there to be used in full or use any small piece of the buffalo you like. 
Now, there's definitely going to be fans of the show, uh, of Critical Role, who uh, love those characters and want to embody them or at least have their own players in this campaign interact with them in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how would you suggest doing that uh, with this book? Uh, if that is the case, then you could consider running storylines, uh, running adventures that can intersect with some of the elements of the Mighty Nines adventures in our Critical Role campaign. And then uh, there are websites that keep track of the character stats if you want to keep it super accurate to what the party has at their disposal, or you can customize them as NPC blocks, with just your favorite kind of hand-picked parts of what they do in the show. Um, it's up to you, but... Uh, th- this campaign book does technically, from a timeline standpoint, happen around episode fifty of our second campaign. Okay, but you can, <gasps> but you can customize it that was my however episode. you want. That was the introduction of Spurt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and introduction and uh, departure. Of- yes, <laughs> <laughs> the brightest stars for yeah. in, in ten minutes. <laughs> 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 Short oh, and sweet. <laughs> yeah, uh, like all super, good characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that, and I think I think people will get a kick out of being able to weave them through. Obviously, players want to have their own story, so not necessarily uh, use the Mighty Nine as as a uh, a crutch or anything like that. But you want to be able to, you know, I mean, like when people play in a Star Wars campaign or a Star Trek role playing game, like, like you want to like know that Kirk and Picard and and Luke Skywalker are all there in the background. Oh yeah, and they're, they're they're existing and they're having their own adventures. And depending on where you want to have it in the timeline, they could you could cross with the adventures from our campaign or thereafter. And of course, Vox Machina from my first campaign. Mm. Uh, while it's twenty years later, most of them are still out there in Exandria, pursuing their life and ripe to be pulled into your home campaign as NPCs as well. Okay, you have one minute left. Final question for Matt? No. I don't. I won't. I don't even know. Too much pressure. Do we have a voice? Advice? What, what? What? What do we do? What are you most excited about, people, to open up this book and get out of it? Oh, oh, that's a big question. Um, I am, I am most excited to hear to, to. I'm most excited when the book has been out for a while to start meeting people at conventions or events and hear the stories that they've forged in this world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to show people what we've done, but I'm more excited to see what people do with it. That's that to me is what's most inspiring. I love Good it. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Well, we're really excited about uh, getting this in the hands of fans. March 17th, everyone will be able to grab it all over the world uh, uh, and and in whatever format you want. But, of course, will you be going to your friendly local game store to try to buy a copy or at least uh, see people uh, uh, picking it up and and get some firsthand? Incognito. Yeah, exactly. Will you have a mask on? (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe. I have a few shops I'm going to pop through and and pick up some copies and... uh, Get it for some friends and family. I'm going to send it out to my parents and say, "Like, look, I'm glad you didn't tell me to stop playing this game." Oh, <laughs> no. We're all glad they didn't stop telling you. I'm going to send that to my parents too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. We are really excited uh, about this release on March 17th, and uh, we'll be getting more and more lore about it uh, coming out hopefully uh, yeah. very soon. No, thank you guys for having me, and thank you, Chris, for for dealing with me through the entirety of this wonderful books process. It was nothing but a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you, buddy. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Take it easy. What a wonderful two very creative individuals. Like, seriously. Yeah. Together. It's so great to see the two of them chat about a project that I think they both put a lot of time and energy uh, into creating. And be inspired by each other. Yeah. They inspire so many yeah. and they inspire 
each other. And as it's well. been cool, like I mentioned in the intro, uh, uh, you know, the ascendance of Matt Mercer in the D and D community kind of has only really been happening in this last five years. More yeah. people have gotten to know about him, uh, but seeing that friendship between Chris Perkins and Matt Mercer uh, kind of develop, and then you got to see it here happen. Uh, I think maybe for the first time here on uh, on Dragon Talk. I mean. In a way, it would be kind of cool if they were bitter rivals. <laughs> but that's just not the case. They yeah. just really love and respect each other. It's true. So it's I true. guess we'll just go with that. You know what? It's, I think it's it's partly our fault, you know, because you and I are also bitter enemies, but we lift each other up. We do. Yeah. Because we need each up. other. And I think they're taking that tenet. That must be what it is. To the limit. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so amazing. Um, everyone should make sure to check out Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount when it is in stores March 17th. Yes. That's another great holiday that's coming up. It is. Uh, you might be able to imbibe some mugs of things while you are playing in Wild Mount. Green things. I hope you do. I hope you do too. Mm hmm. Eat some cabbage. Um, we, as always, like to get more people finding out about Dungeons and Dragons, as well as listening to this here podcast we yes. call The Dragon Talks. Yes. One way to do that is to share the love share of this podcast with your friends in your networks. How would I do that? I think you use an Apple product. Okay. Uh, you press like a button. It's got three dots like three on it. three little dots? Um, I, you're the Apple user here on this, on this microphone. Yeah. Do you have an electronic iPhone? An electronic device? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, do you listen to podcasts? Yes. Do you listen to this podcast? Yes. And then you press the, the if you're ha- listening to the Apple Podcast apps, there's three dots. You press when, those dots. Press those dots. And then it gives you the option to share. Share. On your social networks. That's it. So do that. Please. And then your friends can just be like, oh, click, click, and they're there. Boom. You've done them a favor. You have spread all of the knowledge that you have enjoyed so far from Shelly yeah. and I, not to mention, you know, some, you know, not very well-known individuals like Chris Perkins and Matt Mercer. Right, right. You're helping to elevate their profiles. I know, because they need it. Right. So you should do that. And also, when you share that stuff, the episode comes up, and then all of the show notes that we meticulously put together are on those individual episode pages. Yeah. When we talk about a product... When we talk about a new book that's coming out or yes. Dungeon Mayhem, links to all the more detailed information is within those show notes as well as um, uh, some details about, uh, you know, the guests and things. You know, I appreciate that because I listen to podcasts a lot when I'm driving. Yes. And I just can't stop and write something down. Exactly. So, so I'm glad. when you want to go back and be like, what were they talking about? Right. Oh, there's that thing. Yes. Um, you know, we don't point to it very often. We're going to start doing that a lot more. Uh, maybe even in the intro, because that's what the way professionals do it. That's right. I know, but we'll try. Uh, but this is our practice run. Make it happen. So like, like the podcast, share the podcast, leave us a really nice review of the podcast. Yeah. All those things get to be known. And we're talking about Apple, but you can do those on uh, oh, yeah. other podcatcher apps out there. Um, I personally like Podcast Addict uh, on my Android phone. Uh, and there's a share button on there, too. So there you go. Make it happen. Uh, Google does it. Spotify might do it in the future. All those things. Tell people Tell about them. Shelley and how uh, she is scared of moths. Please don't. <laughs> You'll start getting moths in the mail. Oh, that's not funny. No, I don't think it's kind of funny. Oh, All right. Uh, 
guy. Uh, if you, you know, follow us, that's also a good way to sure. spread on Twitter. Um, I am at Greg Tito there. I'm also at Greg Tito on Instagram, except there's a little yeah. underscore in between there. We're also going to be doing a lot more Instagram uh, what are they called? Stories? Stories. Yeah, we're going to get stories happening. Which makes sense for a storytelling game. Duh, it seems like a no-brainer. Love we it. have brains now. Dr. Tentaculus gave our... Gave them back. Gave our brains back. Licked yeah. them clean first <laughs> and then put them back in And then he inserted all the pants. Instagram stuff in there and then yes. now we're going to spit it out. There we go. Share it. I'm at Shelly Moo <laughs> and you can... can um, write to me and tell me some topics that you might want to cover on how to DM. Mm. If you're a new DM That's or someone idea. who's curious about DMing like I am, yeah, just let me know. What do you think we should cover? DM curious out there. DM let her curious. Know. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're like Rumsfeld. You're like, there's known knowns and unknown <laughs> unknowns about Dungeon Mastering <laughs> that we want to make sure we cover. Uh, that makes sense. Yep. I love it. Uh, of course, if you want to find out about uh, this great hobby, a great way to start at DungeonsAndDragons.com. Uh, but also download the Dragon Plus app. There is a new issue oh, coming out yeah, yeah. this month. It is chock full of amazing maps, uh, previews about things that are coming up, as well as information and a fiction uh, set in the world of Dungeons & Dragons. That so. is true. Actually, uh, a, a very good friend, Mark Price, Mark also Price. a co-worker, is, is, writes fiction often for Dragon Plus. Yeah. I think he's had a couple of stories in there, hopefully more, because he's a really good writer. And I'm pitching Bart on writing some fiction myself. Are you kidding? Yeah, it's going to be what? fun. What? That's I know. amazing. I haven't done it in forever, and I'm like, here, Bart, Oh, my God. Making it happen. This issue of Dragon Plus that's coming up, I will say, also has a wonderful little sneak peek about a project that I'm working on that has not been announced yet, but will be shortly, and Ooh. you will get to read about it. I know. And it's real exciting. I've been tying my tie to make sure it looks really cool in it. For God's sake. <laughs> for Lolf's sake for uh, Lolf's sake thank you so much to everyone who listens to Dragon Talk we get a big kick out of doing this for you every week and uh, we, we do it for the kids as well but not the moths <laughs> but not Never. the moths out there the moths um, Shelly, so <gasps> you are approaching a uh, here we go a creature in the woods oh, that has a no, it's a, it's a it's a humanoid, uh, but its back is turned to you, and it's uh, got a uh, it's wearing a cloak that is uh, shadowy colored. Okay, uh, it doesn't see me. Yeah, you're you're walking up. You you know you're trying to find uh, uh, the way through this forest that will be safe. Okay. And, well, you're, and you're in this, this path by yourself, and you just see this kind of figure with its back turned to you, uh, standing in the middle of the path. Does it look like this figure is carrying a weapon or anything? No, nope, this guy's back to you, and it's cloaked, so it's kind of hard to, to get any details about it. So I will crouch down like a kitty. Okay. And I'll, I will go... Uh, okay, uh, here, I should be giving you this die. Roll me a... Oh. Oops. Oops. Uh, roll me a intimidation check. I was not trying to intimidate. Oh, what are you trying to do? Be friendly. Oh, I'm okay. I'm purring like a kitty. Oh, I thought it was like more of a growl. No. Okay. Uh, so that's more of a persuasion check. Oh, well, and I got a 17. Get? 17. Amazing. Uh, so you turn around and uh, it is an elf and it uh, kind of opens up its cloak. Oh, <laughs> and it's... It, <laughs> Oddly enough, looks like a moth, uh, but its face is very friendly, and it says, oh, hello there, tabaxi friend. Hello. 
The funny thing is that Drunky Two Shoes is actually not afraid of moths. Oh. So she says, hello, beautiful friend. You you look lovely. Would you like to know the way through safely? Yes, can you show me? I'm looking for my brother. Come follow me, but you must must embrace my wings. Why do I have to do that? Because I know you're afraid of moths. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) I am trying to find my brother, so I will do it. Come along. And then uh, you uh, get on its back, and you start fluttering your way through. All of a sudden, you realize that this creature has the power of flight, and you are very impressed. And a fuzzy fuzzy little torso. A fuzzy actually, little torso. It like, feels kind of nice against my cheeks. See? It's just that oh. easy. All right, everybody. We'll pick that up next week. Can't wait to see where I'm going. Bye.